Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you will, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Today we continue the series, The Better Place. And again, uh, of course, I think if Paul were describing it based on what he saw, I think he said the, the far better place. But it is one of those series where we're looking into heaven. And when you look into heaven, you see some pretty phenomenal things, I would think. I've never seen it myself. I know there's been those who've had near-death experiences and all these different things. And you hear all the stories of the light and the tunnel and, and uh, a loved one standing there. Uh, I have no reason not to believe those things uh, because I do believe there's an afterlife. And I think it is real. It's not one of those things where it's a condition. I think it's a literal place, the way the Bible describes it. And, uh, and that's something we should all look forward to, to, do, to going to that place. Uh, but I want to encourage you as we listen to this sermon series that we don't just say, oh, in the by and by and can't wait to get there and that kind of thing. But I hope it will challenge you to live your life with the backdrop of heaven. Because that is our eternal existence. If we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we're followers of Jesus, the backdrop of our lives today is heaven. And so when we go through the things that we go through, all the different things, some of the things that Christian mentioned early, earlier, and when we go through these things, help, we need to realize that the backdrop of our life is not this existence. It's not this reality. It's a reality to come. Uh, this is just a temporary time. So the thing I want us to look at this morning is the throne of the better place. Now the chapters we're going to be looking at today appear to be the present reality of the things happening in heaven today. Okay? So when you say, okay, give me an idea. What's going on in heaven today? That's some of the stuff we're going to be looking at. Now, in review, based on last week and some of the things I shared, I want to kind of show you this whole idea of the junctures and maybe the phases of heaven. Because I think so many times we think we die when we go to one or two places, heaven or hell. Well, well, actually, the true reality of both of those places, there's no one there at this point, okay? When you think about the idea of heaven and hell, the, the full description of it and what it entails in the last phases, okay? There still awaits those who will go through a, a, the great white throne judgment, who will be sentenced to a place called hell. That's still to come. There's still this place for believers that is still to come. Matter of fact, there's two more places still to come for the believer. And so I want to show you some of the things we looked at last week and maybe to help get it in your mind. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the afterlife is referred to as Sheol. Uh, Hades is by the time you get to the, the New Testament. But both places have been called really a measure of paradise, because it seems to be that there are two places in one. You have a place where those who are people who have no faith in God and, and those who have, are followers of Jesus, and there's a great chasm that comes in the middle. And we know that because of some of the stories that are told in Scripture. And so if you'll go ahead and pull those other, yeah. Uh, so it appears that all those who have passed away from the beginning all the way to, to when Jesus' death on the cross, it appears that they went to this place with this gulf. You had those on one side that did not have a faith in God, those on the other who did. Okay, I'll look to this one. And then, 
And, and then in Ephesians chapter 4, if you read those verses, it appears that Jesus goes down to Hades and delivers the followers of Jesus, those who have a faith, Old Testament, New Testament saints. So he delivers them out. Go ahead to the next, if you will. Now, this still is the current reality of non-followers of Jesus. So when you think about what Jesus did there, it appears in Ephesians chapter 4, between the time of his death and his resurrection, what did he do? It appears that he went there to deliver those up who had faith. The ones who are still currently there are the ones who are non-followers of Jesus. So they're still in a place uh, the New Testament calls Hades. Hades, okay? It's still a place of torment based on what we know in the Bible. We see that in Luke chapter 16, all right? Then we have what's called the intermediate heaven, okay? And that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 4. So when you get to this idea, what, what happened to believers? What, what happened when Jesus delivered them from that place? He took them to what we believe is the intermediate heaven. Now, I personally believe, and many commentators and scholars agree with me, that this is the current reality of heaven, this intermediate heaven. One of our dear longtime friends of our church and members of our church for a long time, member of our church for a long time, Carl Frizee, passed away this Friday. And, and, and you see, when you think about Carl and you think about Joy, who or his wife who went before him, and used to be the leader of our seniors ministry, uh, you'll see that that is the reality. I believe that they're experiencing right there in the, in the, in the intermediate heaven, current realities of followers of Jesus. Then you have what's called the millennium heaven that's still to come. And then you also have the eternal heaven, which is really still to come. That's really out there. Okay, so that is the course of action, okay? So we're in the intermediate heaven, okay? Many commentators, many scholars, including us. I'm not a scholar, but anyway, I believe that's where we are. One day we'll experience the, the millennium heaven. That's when we come back with Jesus, establish Jesus' uh, 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 authority over the earth, and then the eternal heaven that's still awaits. So what does all this mean? Well, look at the introduction. In these chapters, Revelations chapter 4 and 5, the scene is heaven at the throne of God. The throne of God, and this is what we need to understand, is a central part of the universe. If someone were to ask you in a spiritual context, where's the center of the universe? It rests at the throne of God. Because everything that is in the universe comes from the throne of God. So let's look at this throne. Revelation chapter 4. First of all, we see the vision of the throne. Now, what's amazing about this place is that Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, King David all spoke about this throne. And the first thing we see there is the summons from the throne. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things I looked. I here is John. John is the writer of the book of Revelations. It's believed that he wrote this letter uh, sometime in the 90s A.D., Okay, so he's quite an old man now. He's been banned to the Isle of Patmos. He tells us that. He's there, uh, and, and he's getting these visions from God himself. And so, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, he says, After these things, he's talking about the church age, I believe, because he's talking about the churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. After these things, I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, 
come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. After the church age, after the time is, that we know as it's winding down and Jesus is about to return, he's giving us some insight as to what is to come. But before he gives us the insight to that in chapter 6 on, he's going to tell us a little bit about the throne and what's there and what's coming from the throne of God. Okay? Now, we know, based on what we know in Scripture, the throne is of supreme majesty, supreme power, and supreme authority. Okay? We know that, and he's being called to that. Next, we see the picture of the throne. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in an appearance like an emerald. Skip down to verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, how many of you have noticed he's using the word like a lot? That tells us John is doing his very best to describe heaven. And the only thing he can say is it's out of this world. No pun intended. Well, I guess there is intended there. But, but it's out of this world. And he's saying it's like this and it's like this. I'm doing the best I can to explain to you what this place looks like. But it's out of this world. So let's look at some of the things he's mentioned. First of all, there's jasper. It's a clear stone, and it seems to represent purity. The Sardis stone is a red stone, and many would say that it represents judgment. All right? Then you have what's called the emerald rainbow, and we all know a rainbow represents a covenant, okay? Covenant with God. Now, a rainbow, this rainbow appears to be with the primary color being green. Now, don't know what that means. Other than that. And it's a rainbow which encircled the throne. Most of the time when we see a rainbow in the sky, what do we see? We, we see an arc, right? We kind of just see an arc. It's talking about this one encircles the throne, which many people believe that means there's an eternal covenant associated with this throne. Okay? So what does that tell us about the covenants that God has made with man? It means they are eternal. They're eternal. God never takes a step back from the covenant that he makes with us. But then he talks about something called the crystal sea. And it seems to represent cleansing. Cleansing. Now, possibly at the base of the throne was a vast pavement of glass or the clear gold mentioned later in, in chapter 21. Some have suggested that it may represent the laver that you see there. If you ever studied the temple of the tabernacle, you have the laver that's there. That's where the priest would cleanse themselves before they did what they were called to do as a priest, okay, before the sacrifices and all these different things. So they say it represents holiness. Some go as far as saying it could represent the Word of God itself. The fact that that is the, the way that we learn of cleansing. Others would say, and this is not far into God's word, that literally when it's referring to a sea, that it could be talking about a, a big number of people, a large number of people. It says there around the throne. 
gathered around the throne. And some people believe it's a reference to the Old and New Testament saints. So you have these ideas that are out there concerning this. Next, we have the judgments out of the throne. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Now I want you to think about that. I, 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 can, I can get my mind around lightnings, thunderings, then voices. Anybody heard that one in, in, like that before? Okay, so we, we got some crazy stuff happening right now. There's some things happening. Some people would say, and I think it's easy to see, a storm of some sort is brewing. The rumblings of a coming judgment. And then he goes on when he says, and in the midst of this, there were seven lamps of fire, and they were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, seven equals the completeness of something. And in this sense, many people believe it means the completeness of the Holy Spirit. But torches many times in the ancient world were associated with a coming war. A coming war. Now, what do you know about the book of Revelation? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, you've got a scene that's taking place. It seems to be heavenly. Chapters 2 and 3, you've got uh, John uh, or God addressing or Jesus addressing the churches in the second and third chapter. We come to chapter 4, and that's where we are right now. And you've got this beautiful picture of the throne and how redemption came. We'll see that in just a moment. But man, when you hit chapter 6... It gets really bad from there on out. From chapter 6 all the way to 19, what you find is judgment is being poured out upon the earth. And we see that there's a coming storm. So we see the judgment. Next, we also see the vision of beings. And there are several groups of people around this throne. The first is called, are called the 24 elders. The 24 elders. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Skip down to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying... You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, who are these 24 elders? Their thrones tell us that they're ruling with whoever's on the throne. They're ruling with him. But who are the elders? Well, we know they're not angels because angels do not rule. Angels don't rule. They, I'll tell more about them in a moment. Elders always is a reference to men or people, not angels. Okay? Now, it says, if you go back and look at these, these verses, they were wearing crowns, which tells us they must be human. Okay? Because angels are never given crowns. But who could they be? Well... There's some thought that maybe there are two sets of people. Maybe there are the 12 tribes of Israel being represented there and the 12 apostles of the church. Now, that would make sense because God placed a lot of emphasis on these two groups, especially when it comes to the covenants being carried out. 
So that would be no problem for John to be seeing this. Now, let me tell you one thing that's ironic, if that's true. Who is he looking at on one of those thrones? He's seeing himself. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? John's sitting there getting a vision from God around heaven, and he's looking, and there he is. <laughs> it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Or the 24 elders could represent a larger group of people, those who have benefited from the covenants God made with mankind. Now, God has allowed this before. This type of language has been used before. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David was allowed to elect 24 priests to represent all the priests in that day. Now, what does this mean? Could it be that these 24 are a representation of something? I personally believe, this is me, okay, I believe it's a reference and it represents all the redeemed of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Clothed in white, this tells me something, normally means they have the righteousness of Jesus. They are in the dress of a follower of Jesus. White robes represent righteousness. Not our righteousness, correct? His righteousness has been given to us, okay? So we're wearing thrones. So if someone were to press me personally, based on the studies I've done in this, and said, who do you think they are? Well, first of all, I don't know exactly, but I would have no problem with it being the 12 uh, families of Israel, uh, the 12 apostles. Hey, that makes sense. Okay, we'll go with that. Represents the covenant. But I'm really more inclined to say they're a representation of all those who are followers of Jesus, all those Old Testament saints and New Testament saints gathered around the throne. Next, we have the four living creatures. Now, now how many of you sometimes when the Bible describes something, you're like, I never want to see that? <laughs> I mean, you think about some of the things that's described, and you're like, well, I don't want to see that. <laughs> well, this might be in that category. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Look at the second part of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, many people say that's just a, a, an idea, meaning they're fully aware and they're alert constantly. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now what's ironic about these is they appear to be the closest to the throne more than anyone. They seem to be an exalted order of angels known as cherubim. Now, it also seems to imply that they move around the throne. Now, if you're taking notes, they're mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 25. Now, the four creatures could represent, and some people say this, that it could represent the four testimonies of Jesus Christ. It could represent the four gospels. And, and, and to some truth, that kind of makes sense. The lion, the gospel of Matthew. 
Okay, Because when you think about what Matthew is attempting to do, he's trying to reach a Jewish audience. He's aligning it with the, the, the Messiah's like a roaring lion. Number two, a calf, the gospel of Mark. Because Mark pays more attention to the fact that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which means what? A servant. A servant. And a calf would fall into that category. And then man, the gospel of Luke. Because Luke seems to be all about the human interest stories. He's about what's going on with different people and how this is breaking down. All the way from, uh, I mean, you think about the, the, there's stories in Luke that's not found in others because he centers so much around the human story. Then an eagle, many would say, represented the gospel of John. Or, many say, they just represent all living things. It's a representation of all living things worshiping the one who sits on the throne. I have no problem with it being either one of these. <laughs> but I will tell you this. What does seem to be amazing about this is everything around the throne seems to represent something of God's dealing with the people here on earth. Whether you're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel being represented along with the 12 apostles. Maybe you've got the four testimonies of Jesus which represent the gospel. It's amazing how you sometimes you kind of just see it all kind of coming together. Okay? Now, here's another thing. Look at the last part of verse 8. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. That means absolute, pure, without sin. Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That phrase, who was and is and is to come, encapsulates when Jesus, when God tells Jesus, you tell him I am sent you. It's the encapsulation of what that means. Who is, or excuse me, who was and is and is to come. That is I am. Okay? They're speaking of who he truly is. Next, we have millions of angels around the throne of God. Now, I want you to think about that. Would, would you say it would be pretty cool to have a, a view of this? I mean, really, I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. And then you throw in angels, millions. Angels are mentioned 273 times in Scripture, 34 of the 66 books of the Bible mention angels. Now, I want you to skip over to the chapter 5. I want you to look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them, now he's getting back to the angels, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, let me tell you, I personally believe there's two things when it comes to trying to understand Scripture where most people go way off. One way is where there's a group of people out there that says, and I've heard many say this, Matter of fact, they did poll. Seven, seven out of ten Christians believe you get to heaven by doing good works. That's what, you, that's what you'll find, okay? Even in, in, in circles that we walk. So many people say, if the good outweighs the bad, I'm in. Okay? That's out there. That's one of the fallacies of Scripture. But the second thing I think is misunderstood in Scripture is the whole idea of angels. 
the whole idea of angels. It's amazing how people misinterpret what angels are really all about and what they're like. Now, a lot of confusion around angels. So true or false, you don't have to say it out loud. You can say it to yourself that way you don't get in trouble. But I'm going to give you a little test, okay? I'm going to give you a little test about what some people believe about angels and some of it's not true. It's okay to worship angels because they are of a higher rank than human beings, true or false. That would be false. False, you don't worship angels. Matter of fact, there's two times in the book of Revelation, John kind of goes in that direction that the angel's very nervous at that point. No, John, get up. No, 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 no. Now, the last time someone worshipped angels and gone, it didn't turn out well. But anyway, secondly, the phrase guardian angel is in the Bible. That's false. Now, do I think angels are there to protect? Yeah, that's one of their things that we know they're called to do, to protect. But the idea that we all have our own little guy with us doesn't really shake out. Okay? How about this? There's evidence in the Bible that angels are female. Ladies, I hate to disappoint you. We don't read about female angels. They're male. So if I go to your house and I see female angels there, (laughs) (laughs) it's a fallacy. You don't find any in Scripture. Okay? How about this? When a person dies, they become an angel. False. Angels are a different created order than human beings. The things that are, pri- are privy to us are not privy to angels. There are certain things about angels and their tasks that are different than human beings, completely different. How about this one? There is no way angels can be in this room. That's also false. They, well, they probably are here in this room. So when you begin to think about angels, be careful where you go with it, because the culture says one thing, but the Bible clearly says something different. So what is the truth about angels? Look at on your outline. Number one, their origin. They were created. They are created beings just like we are. They, 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 they haven't always existed. But there is one thing that we know. They existed before the creation of this world. We do know that. Okay? How about their nature? Did you know angels have personality? It's not some life force out there. They have personality. How do we know that? Well, number one, they have intelligence. They have a desire to learn about salvation. Matter of fact, they stand in all of salvation. That's what the Bible says. They they perceive the purposes of men on occasion. We've seen that in Scripture. They also have emotions. The Bible says they have a deep sense of awe and reverence for things that are holy. And the Bible says they rejoice when a sinner repents. That's what the Bible says. They also have a will. And and the thing about an angel is the fact that they came to a point where they had to choose God and follow him or Lucifer and follow him. Okay, so there came a choice for them also. And we know that a third of the angels did what? They fell and followed Lucifer, who was Satan. So we see that. Next, what are their activities? Number one, they're worshipers. They're worshipers. We see it very clearly in this text, right here in verses 11 and 12. We've already read it. And so we see 
They're worshipers. Matter of fact, that's our primary ministry is worshipers. Number two, ministers. They're ministers. Jesus is there on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The devil comes to tempt him. You remember the story? Tempts him. For, I mean, it's, it's just a bad situation. He's there. Jesus, the God-man, is there. He, it must be very intense because the Bible says when he left, guess who came to minister to Jesus? The angels did. Same thing happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The angels came to minister to Jesus. They're also messengers. How many of you already knew that? Oh, yeah. Who's the most famous messenger angel? Gabriel. Okay? Matter of fact, he's the one that brought a word about Jesus' birth. Look here at Luke chapter 2. Then the angel said to, the Lord, to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is to all people. He's talking to the shepherds. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That came from the voice of an angel. Okay? But there's other. Mary was told by an angel. That was Gabriel. How about this? They're protectors. Protectors. They're ready Think about the time that they could have rescued Jesus. Now, how do we know they could have? Because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26. Okay? You remember the story? They come to arrest Jesus, and Peter is going to protect Jesus. He pulls out and slices the guy's ear off. You remember that? Okay. Do you know what Jesus' response was? Here's what he said. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? And he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels. Peter, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? You're, you're messing everything up. This is supposed to happen. By the way, Peter, if I need help, I don't need you to do it. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. That's, what, that's where that comes in at. And Jesus is basically saying... I could call 12 legions of angels. You know how many that is? Most people believe it's 72,000 angels. Can, can one angel do a lot of damage? Oh, yeah. Read the Bible. Can you imagine 72,000 of them? But that's what Jesus said. They're also executors. Executors of God's judgment and plans. You, you want a picture of that? Revelations chapter 6 all the way to verse, uh, chapter 16. All through the book of Revelation, the seal, the trumpet, the bowl judgments, all are carried out by angels. Many other tasks that God had asked of them. He, he just, they're, they're there to execute the plans and purposes of God. Then we come to the interesting part of this story around the throne. And we see the one weeping man. The one weeping man is John. John is given this vision. I want you to understand this. He's given this vision. He sees the awesomeness of the throne of God. I believe, this is just, this is Brian's take on it, that the Old Testament saints are there, the New Testament saints are there, the four living creatures are there, millions of angels are there. They're all sitting there, they're all worshiping God. But suddenly the attention changes. Changes. The attention changes. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back 
sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. No one was even worthy to look at it. Now, what is all this about? What's happening here is we're seeing the redemptive plan of God. Who is capable of pulling off the redemptive plan of God? Okay, that's really what's happening here. Now, to say what the scroll is, there's some commentators who believe that this scroll is actually a deed to the earth. Who has the power over the earth? Now, who initially had power over God's creation? If you read, Adam did. You remember Adam had authority over the earth in the garden. Okay, but then it seemed that it fell to who? Who's the prince of the power of darkness over the air, in the air? Satan himself. All of a sudden, there's been an exchange from Adam to Satan, and, and we've got the title deed to the earth and all the evil and all the everything that's out there. Who's worthy to correct all this? Who's worthy to redeem the earth from Satan himself and his power? That's what many commentators believe we're looking at here. So I, John, when he saw this scene, he wept much. It appeared that no one was worthy to rectify this problem. Now, why would he weep? Because John has seen the torment of this world. He's seen the sorrow, the pain, the lost hope. He saw all those things, and, and, and there, there is a way to rectify it. And I want you to think about what he's doing. He's looking at something that's holy, that's pure, that's perfect, compared with his own experience, which is just the opposite. And he's weeping and longing for all this to be corrective where maybe this could be what it could look like. And so he says, I wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one was there to, to, to rectify the situation here on earth. No one appeared to be there. And so we see the tears of John, the weeping man, but then we see the one worthy lamb, which is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, there's times where God will do something, and, and I don't know about you, and, and sometimes, it just, sometimes it's just obvious, and you're sitting there, and you're like, wow, that was pretty cool, pretty cool. See how God moved in that. Or I've, go, or I've gone through something that's been very trying in my life, come out on the other side and think, huh, <laughs> Wow. I see what he was up to. I, did, this is pretty cool. But I want you to think about this scene in heaven. There seemed to be no solution to what was going on on earth. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this is a reference to the Messiah, who we know as Jesus, has prevailed. And basically, when he says prevail, that means this lamb has defeated sin, death, and the forces of evil. That's what Jesus did, okay? He defeated those things. 
And he has prevailed to be able to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, the seven seals represent, I believe, the seven seals of judgment that's getting ready to fall. So basically, who is going to make all this right? Well, heaven has determined God's judgment must be poured out upon the earth first. So that has to happen first. So John's like, well, let's get on with it. Let's, let's move this thing forward. By the way, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. He's talking about the tribulation period. And so he has prevailed. And I look, verse 6, And behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, I want you to think about where John is. He's in heaven. He's at the throne of God. Everything in its array is in, in, is in perfection. Except for what? This lamb that has been slain. It could very well mean a bloodied lamb. One that maybe its wool has been matted in blood and something that has almost looked out of place. But he looked there. He saw it. It has seven horns. That literally means complete power. Seven eyes. That means complete understanding and knowledge. Which are the seven spirits of God. That means he represented the fullness of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So who was worthy? That lamb. Who was that lamb? It's a representation of Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. He's the one who's going to make everything right. He's the one that's going to bring perfection in places it's never been or hasn't been. And all these things are going to be carried out. And so what are we left with here? Well, the vision of worship. After he rightfully took the scroll, praise breaks out in heaven. After the silence comes the climax. Can you imagine heaven being silent? It was silent. There was nothing that was said. It appeared nothing could be done, but then all of a sudden we captured and saw the lamb that was there. He comes to center stage. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, that's him, a picture of him taking responsibility. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to, rece to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in the earth, on the earth, under the earth, and such are in the sea, all that are in them are heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four, 24 elders, which could be a representation of us, fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever.
Have you ever heard anything described like this before? This is an amazing scene. And, and so my question to you right now is, when you think about heaven, what are you thinking about? I think about streets of gold. I think about walls of jasper. I think about all the many things. But did you know that's still to come? That's still to come. The very place that I would call the intermediate heaven, the very place that I believe when we step from this world to the next is a scene of what we see right here. This is the throne of the living God. And the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And all that there is in this scene that we see. So what are we going to be worshiping about? What are we worshiping around the throne? That God brought a redemptive plan to us to salvage us, to restore us, to redeem us. And it all came by way of that little lamb who we know is Jesus Christ. So really, here's the question this morning. Do you know Jesus have you accepted what he's done on our behalf? You do know that your only hope for even seeing anything like this is through that little lamb that was slain, Jesus. He's the one who paid the price for you that would allow you to be a part of that. And so when you think about your loved ones who were followers of Jesus, who have gone on before you uh, there, I, I personally believe this is their reality. Do they occasionally turn and, and hear the loved ones coming and, and possibly go and gather them and bring them into the presence of God? I think that's possible. I, I can't tell you how many times I hear, and hospice people will tell you this, how many times these people, when they're there about to cross over, they'll see loved ones. It seems so real. I believe all that is that big time of getting together. But you know something? What's really amazing is we're going to leave that very throne one day when we're there with him, and we're going to come back with him to this earth. And the full idea of the restoration will begin at that point. So it's not only us being redeemed, this world is going to be redeemed. And perfection is on its way. Perfection is on its way. That is our reality. So my question is, do you know him? I want to ask you at this point, would you please stand to your feet with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I'm going to ask the prayer partners to come forward if they would. <clears throat> with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I just want to ask, do you know for certain that you'll go to heaven when you die? The only certainty you have is found in Jesus. And that's the reason John also wrote when he said, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know you have eternal life? By accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. By turning from your sin and turning to Him. By, by attempting to live your life in the perfection of what He's called you to live. Even though it won't be perfect, it will be forgiven. Because he who has come has set you free. He took on the penalty of your sin. He took on the wrath that was due you. All because he came to redeem you. If you know him as your Lord and Savior. 
And so if, you don't, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, if you've never turned from your sin and turned to him, and you want someone to pray with you right now, that's what these people are down here at the front are willing and waiting to do. So just leave your seat right now. They'll be glad to pray with you. They'll be glad to talk with you more about a decision to follow Jesus. I want to invite you to do that at this time. Also, would you sing with us as we close us out? Those prayer partners are here for you.